Over the last decade, cloud computing made it easier to programmatically define what infrastructure we have running and to perform operations across that infrastructure using code. And this is called infrastructure as code. Whether you want to back up a database or deploy a new version of a service or introduce a new tier of load balancers, the changes that we make across our infrastructure can be done programmatically instead of through a series of manual steps. As infrastructure has gotten turned into code, operations people have started working more like developers, and developers have begun to work like operations people. This convergence is often known as DevOps. At Google, the DevOps movement was manifested into a role called a site reliability engineer. DevOps and SRE, site reliability engineering, are not exactly the same thing, but it is a response to related changes in the way that infrastructure is managed. And in previous shows, we've explored DevOps and site reliability engineering thoroughly. Lane Campbell is a senior VP of engineering at Fastly and the author of the book Database Reliability Engineering. In this book, Lane describes how the ideas of site reliability engineering can be extended to databases. Lane joins the show today to discuss the book and how engineering teams can build effective workflows around databases. Before we get started, I want to mention we're looking for a videographer. We're also looking for a writer. We're looking for several other jobs. And if you're interested in checking those out, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. If you want to get involved with us in a lower commitment way, you can check out our open source community at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. We've got several different apps for iOS, Android, the web, and they all have open source contributors. So if you're interested in getting involved, then we would love to have you as part of our open source community. You can check that out at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. You can, of course, check out those apps at the App Store for iOS or for Android. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Lane Campbell, you are Senior VP Engineering at Fastly. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So it's 2018. Infrastructure as code and cloud computing are allowing us to update our software architecture more quickly and more flexibly, more aggressively. How does this change how we think about database infrastructure? Well, I think uh, the first thing that happens is we find ourselves in a place where our database infrastructure isn't keeping up with the velocity of changes that are happening in the rest of the organization. We're finding that you know, we're, we're making great progress in certain areas, and then anytime we have to interact with our data stores, we either have to have special exceptions, or it has to be manual or painful, and people are starting to ask you know, why we can't uh, do the same things that we do with the rest of our environment and the rest of our architecture with these data stores. They're also at the same time terrified of that because of the risk involved. We have cloud providers these days. We can outsource much of our infrastructure uptime to cloud providers, but not all of it. Similarly, we can outsource some of our database administration to our cloud provider. What aspects of database management do we still need to manage ourselves? So it is actually a great thing to be able to start to use these databases as a service 
to essentially get rid of some of the toil and a lot of the uh, things that have traditionally consumed a significant amount of time and effort from our database engineers. But it does definitely does not uh, make it so we don't need those database engineers. Instead, it really is pushing those engineers up the stack, right? So at this point, they should have more time. And with that time, we hope that they will be focusing on data access patterns, uh, data modeling itself, uh, making sure that we are doing data governance, essentially all the aspects that are much more closely tied to how this application works and then how how that data is consumed and how that data is stored rather than replication, backups, failovers, all of those things. Role of the database administrator has been around for a while. How does the role of database administrator differ from the idea of the database reliability engineer, which is something that you've written about in this book, Database Reliability Engineering? It has, so database administration has been around for a while. I myself have been doing it since the late 90s. And this concept of database reliability engineering is its a kind of nuanced paradigm shift, right? I think uh, it's important that we don't, even as we look at these new paradigms, even as we look at new ways to do our jobs, that we don't forget about the importance of uh, operations and reliability and uh, things that we do hear a lot can be sort of just be abstracted away but in reality are still core to what we do. In the database engineers uh, world, then what we're looking at here is uh, people who really, just like traditional reliability engineering, if you can call something so young, traditional, uh, that we need people who do approach the concept of uh, managing data from a software development perspective, uh, but who can combine that with operations. People who are willing to develop a depth of expertise around data modeling, around uh, the risks of data loss or data corruption, be able to take uh, widely distributed systems, microservice systems, and provide the same rigor that in the past they might have provided in terms of replication and ETL, et cetera, and creating what is an architecture-wide focus on the data flow and helping to take that kind of knowledge, helping to take that kind of expertise and push it into the software in software development organizations. Because I think that is a lot, really the key here is we know that uh, we're never going to have enough database administrators, just like we're never going to have enough security people. And so this database reliability engineer needs to approach, approach their job as uh, the work of, instead of being gatekeepers, Uh, to the database, to the data itself, is how to enable self-service, how to enable scale from software engineers, how to get them in the system, in the databases, working with the data in a way that still manages risk and manage, you know, where recoverability guardrails are crucial. Um, but no longer is it a case of, well, you know, I need to wait for this database administrator to approve and gatekeep all of this. But instead, this database administrator has, uh, or in this case, this database engineer has uh, used their expertise, used their depth uh, to create Uh, these self-service patterns that I know will work, that I can apply. And, oh, here's one that, based on the heuristics given to me from past where I've worked with these specialists, uh, I know that it is time to go work with that data engineer on the really crucial items that just can't can't be handled without someone with deep domain expertise, because you still do need that deep domain expertise. As you said, the SRE role is fairly new to the public. It's a role that has been in the domain of Google for a long time. The site reliability engineering role 
within Google, which we've done a, a couple shows on. And when Google started talking about it more publicly, they came out with that SRE book. Many companies looked at that and said, there is something there that is appealing to me. There is the SRE idea takes DevOps and does something to it that either makes it more concrete or puts it in some different light that allows me to understand what I should be doing in my operations, my software operations side of things more acutely. What is it? What did the SRE role that came out of Google do to the DevOps, the broader DevOps community, what realizations did it make people have about software engineering? That is an excellent question, and one that I'm sure no matter how I answer, I'll get in trouble for. <laughs> the semantics arguments uh, are, are very fun. Uh, what I, th- I personally view is that DevOps got this idea, particularly for young, uh, rapidly iterating organizations that we didn't need to silo away this uh, the concept of operations from our developers. In fact, developers who had access to the operating characteristics of their systems often wrote better services, wrote better applications. And I think that that was crucial and created a lot of value. And then what I think we started to see after that was uh, a lot of people believed in the concepts of DevOps and they saw they saw it work in certain places. But as enterprises and larger organizations, older organizations went to do it, there were certain uh, impedance mismatches. And I think SRE is really the next step from this. It's this concept of we recognize that our, our developers should be brought as close as possible to the operating characteristics of the systems that they build. But at the same point, there are there always will be this need for uh, a core team of experts who can uh, can bridge the gap between operations and our developers, even if they are practicing DevOps principles. Um, this idea of a team that is focused on uh, scaling by teaching, by providing reuse, really takes things the next step, um, particularly for environments that just simply can't get the traction with DevOps alone. It is sort of an expansion on the model and a mature model for a larger company where you know, you're never going to be able to give full access to your developers to do all the operations, nor do a lot of your developers want to, uh, but you still want to give, you know, embed in their teams, these organs, these operators, these uh, database engineers who have deep domain expertise and can have, have shown the ability to teach that, to partner and pair that and pr- bring that expertise into the decision-making uh, of the day-to-day service developers. So at many of the organizations I've talked to, I get the sense that there are not full-time database engineers. So if you if you think about a company like Uber, I did a show recently about Uber's data platform in which they have a Hadoop cluster and an Elasticsearch cluster and Presto and MySQL and... MemSQL and all these different databases and data things, but there's no particular engineer for any one of them. There are data platform engineers who help with the uptime of the data platform. There are people who are writing applications against front-facing APIs that are, uh, you know, exposed out of that data platform. But there's not an actual person who is working on any one particular database. So who is, in an organization like that, who is practicing 
database reliability engineering? Is it all of us, or is it is are you advocating for a specific role of a database reliability engineering? It's so dependent on the company itself. I think if you, particularly if you look at uh, older companies that have a long tradition, in particularly in Oracle, uh, even mainframe data stores, SQL Server, they have experts in these systems. And the idea that these are the people that only work on the data stores um, is one that I definitely don't think needs to be there anymore. We Even at Fastly, we don't have anyone whose job is purely to work on the data stores themselves. But at the same point, we have people who you know started their careers and built their careers being database engineers, database architects, who are now becoming platform engineers, who are taking that expertise and not only focusing on a MySQL, but starting to work on you know the, this general principle of how do I build a platform as a service in Google Cloud. Um, since I think the uh, the type of the type of skill set, the type of brain that makes a good database engineer often translates quite well uh, into those platform architects. That tends to be where we're going. Uh, But if you don't seed those teams with uh, people who I consider, and again, I don't necessarily think we should, a company needs a database reliability engineering team. I think some, I think it can work. I think it's one model, uh, particularly for environments that have significant uh, data store needs. Uh, at the same point, I think um, you, even if you have a more generalist team of platform engineers, I would imagine if you looked at Uber or anyone else, you've got database reliability engineers without the title uh, doing that work. And I think that's the more important thing here is do we have people who not only under, deeply understand, you know, the storage mechanisms, the, uh, you know, the MVCC and locking and concurrency characteristics, the optimization, all of those things, but are they also good teachers? Are they also people who can build patterns that can be applied elsewhere? That's what you end up getting out of those experts rather than trying to build this, you know, siloed team. And the SRE world has a number of subjects that are always worth discussing. And there are things like incident response and run books that we could talk about. And and I'm sure we will talk about. If we're trying to articulate what database reliability engineering is, is it taking those ideas, those abstract ideas like incident response and run books and the other aspects of of site reliability engineering and drawing a line from those to the database reliability the the, the database world or or is it is it something different than that I think that is part of it obviously if you you know you need a database uh, someone who do a deep knowledge on the data the, the data level sorry I'm losing my uh, power of speech there for a moment um, who can then apply you know those principles to say okay these are the things that you know anyone who is deploying a uh, data store should automatically get these monitoring templates right they should automatically get these uh, failover the tooling and the runbooks associated with it these are the areas we need to abstract out so a generalist can perform some typical tasks and these are the areas that we can start applying to the CI/CD platform as well around uh, how to apply change to these systems. So they, you know, you do become. I think the DBRE 
should and can become uh, almost a linchpin in a reliability organization as a whole who can you know, take those principles, take them down to the level of depth necessary to apply them to the data stores, and also who can learn from other reliability experts on, you know, on risk management, on you know, service level objectives, incident response, all of these areas, uh, and, perf- and build a richer, deeper team. That's one side of it. But I think the other side is this concept of the DBRE should be focusing on eliminating the gatekeeping, right? And that means building, building guardrails, providing education, collaboration, uh, teaching people how to work in these environments and making sure whether it's through, you know, shadowing and embedding or it's through self-service that we're building systems that uh, are less risky to allow, uh, you know, any software engineer to work within. And because obviously the level of risk involved with working within the data stores is much higher than, you know, within your web servers or your even your caching tier or anything else. Eliminating the gatekeepers. When you say gatekeeper, are you referring to the barrier to getting a question answered for like if you if you have some data related question, the fact that you have to go to somebody on the data science team or the data engineering team and have them figure out how to write your query against the Hadoop cluster is that the kind of gatekeeping you're talking about? No, I think that is uh, that's more of a symptom of just uh, centralization and siloing. I'm talking more along the lines of you know we don't allow people to uh, push DDL you know, make table changes into the data store, or we don't allow people to necessarily write SQL or do data modeling without XXX reviewing and approving. Or, you know, the CI platform works great, and we're even doing, you know, continuous deployment or some level of continuous delivery. But hey, when it comes time to apply the changes to the database, we now need a human from this specific team to come in and apply them. That's more of the kind of gatekeeping I'm talking about. Why is that important? Why is it important for anybody in the organization to feel empowered to write queries against the database? Well, I mean, the data is the lifeblood of the system, of the of more of the business. And, you know, the more that people can query or interact with the data, the more experimentation you're going to have, the uh, more knowledge and database decision making is going to be driven there. Uh, similarly, I think, um, the it, it's a matter of velocity, right? I, all companies right now are competing based on how quickly they can get features out, how quickly they can ideate on them and pivot and change. And um, almost all of that at some level will require uh, changing what data is stored or changing uh, how you access that data. And if you are dependent on a core team of people uh, for that, then they will inevitably not slow you down. And then you will lose in the competition uh, for feature deployment and ideation. I think I'm understanding what you're saying here. You're saying that if you can get to a culture that has well-defined incident response, for example, you won't be as afraid of changing the database or having the intern write a new query against the database, because even if the intern brings down the database, you have a well-defined way of responding to an incident. So you don't need to be afraid of that intern query. Exactly. The guardrails are in place to manage that. And they're at different levels, right? Like you said, incident response as a whole, detecting uh, when there's a problem. Obviously, architecturally, you can 
create environments where access to data can be done on a data store that is not the same as the production data store. But similarly, if you are, you know, if you've created an environment of continuous recovery, this idea that your backups are not only running, but they're always being tested, they're used every day in, you know, standard deployment practices, standard test and integration practices. And, you know, there's not a single backup that exists that hasn't had some level of integration or testing against it. Uh, you're going to be more comfortable with this idea of letting people iterate on the data model some because you know recovery works, you know works well and you, it works fast. Uh, similarly, uh, and you know, I think a lot of people are comfortable now with this idea of any number of read replicas available that you can distribute work across, queries across, everything else, and that, that model works well. And we even get to the point where someone might be willing to say, okay, I'm willing to apply a little bit of chaos engineering and shoot a replica in the head because I know I have a load balancer, I know I have extra capacity. But then it's taking it to the next step and saying, we actually have tested failovers of the data persistence, the writing to the database uh, well enough that that primary data node could even get shot in the head. And we know exactly what will happen. You know, we have back pressure mechanisms or secondary persistence mechanisms in place to make sure that we don't lose data. And uh, we test it regularly at that point, even at that point, you get to the point where no one is even concerned about, well, what happens if I have to, you know, fail over the, the primary node? And that is a significant paradigm shift in how people think about the data stores is, you know, the comfort, the comfort with the risk that comes with letting people create failure situations on the primary nodes that are taking writes in versus failure situations in the more horizontal read nodes of a data store. There are some challenges that people can encounter when they're trying to make these cultural change changes. And and I think database reliability engineering, as as I'm hearing it from you, is really about a mindset shift. It's about a cultural shift as opposed to being about any specific role change or any specific, you know, point organizational change. It's more about a shift in in mindset to being able to move faster and, and move more comfortably. I went to the DevOps Enterprise Summit, I think it was like a year and a half ago, and it was interesting because there were a lot of organizations that I would, you know, I don't talk to them on software engineering daily, but there are companies that are doing software engineering, and it's, you know, some company in in the Midwest that has lots of software engineers, and they have lots of software engineering problems and lots of legacy issues, and they come to the DevOps Enterprise Summit because they're trying to learn to move faster, and and you see them struggling and eventually succeeding in figuring out how to adapt their organization. But the point is that I want to avoid software engineering daily becoming this place where I just like talk about these things in theory and don't you know witness them where the rubber meets the road. So I'm very curious because you work at Fastly and that's a high throughput, you know, intense engineering project building a, a CDN. So when you think about applying these kinds of mentalities, the, the da- database reliability engineering mentalities to to a CDN, like Fastly, I mean, a CDN is in some ways just a, a big database that has a lot of operational challenges around it. What are the challenges that come to mind in trying to implement database reliability engineering practices? Uh, so it is interesting that you uh, you talk about Fastly and this uh, concept of our edge network being a giant global key value 
data store because that is what it is. And I, I laughed when I first joined the company saying someone who spent their entire career working in databases comes to a company that doesn't really have a lot of data of significant size. And in fact, you know, our, we don't store logs for customers, right? We make sure that those logs go directly to their customers, but we don't store them. Our entire edge storage is essentially volatile and doesn't need to be persisted. So it was pretty funny that I was coming to this organization, but our CEO, Archer Berkman, consistently said, nope, you are just working on one of the largest data stores ever. And in many ways, they've already applied a lot of those concepts, right? I mean, to, to manage an edge, to manage a data store that is so distributed, you know, we've already had to solve for velocity. We've already had to solve for reliability in terms of making sure we can recover. You know, in this case, we don't have to worry that much about recovering our data, but we do have to make sure that we're not running in you know split brains or places where the data isn't there. So the edge side, I think a lot of customers have already solved solved those kinds of problems for that. But then when you look at the control plane side of our system, right, where the systems that provide the interfaces for customers uh, to fastly and how it works, or looking to get data out of our systems about how their end users are experiencing fastly and what's going on there, that is a place where you know we are going undergoing an active cultural change in what we do, and because our data our data stores in those environments aren't huge, but they have to be reliable, right? A customer can't lose the ability to configure how their edge works. That's, you know, at that point, they're in deep trouble. So, uh, you know, we have a case where we say, how do we optimize for reliability while, you know, without impacting uh, how frequently we can iterate and change and grow for those control plane environments? And there are cult- particularly cultural changes involved. Because for one thing, I think people who are used to operating a fleet or operating a very horizontally distributed system, when you ask them to start looking at potentially becoming on-call and becoming regular operators for a data store, they put their hands up. They're like, nope, I don't want to touch that. Uh, That is something terrifying. And, you know, culturally, you have to first off, make sure that you you can't just hand uh, someone who is a generalist, a data store and say, manage this without training, without run books, without ideally, you know, some level of abstraction on failover and backups that is very easy and that you can teach people to do and show them, no, it's actually, it works very well. And that's what you end up having to culturally do is to, you know, build the self-service, build the guardrails and start to teach these people and show them no look, you know, you can do this. Uh, Look, we've now invested in a proxy layer that allows you to do a failover uh, in the middle of the day without anyone noticing. Now let's go have each of you do this. Now let's shadow uh, an operator from a regular, from, or even a developer who does database engineering uh, with a failover and show them how it works, show them how a recovery works. And it takes time and it is a matter and it it takes time not only for those engineers who are terrified of working in those environments don't necessarily want to but then on the other side for you know the uh, the managers for the risk the risk folks the compliance folks everything else to show them that you know you can create an environment where you've de-risked this you've created visibility into what happens in your data stores so that they they themselves feel like this isn't Wild West. This isn't, oh, everyone's in there doing anything now because honestly, some older older companies are just getting to the point where you know they're starting to give people a little more system access outside of their core area. So then to tell them, well, now everyone can work in the data store and that isn't necessarily true anywhere 
not just anyone can work in the data store. There is still risk. This is still one of the most important, actually, I would say the most important area of our architecture. And so we still, it's not like we're just saying, okay, day one, there you go. There is rigor involved in teaching people how to work in it, how to evaluate risk and how to learn from it. And on on the other side, it is teaching those folks who do the risk management, the compliance management, the incident management, showing them the auditability aspects of it, the, you know, the controls that are in place to mitigate any impacts, the guardrails that have been done. And that comes to a lot of more core areas of SRE and even DevOps around, you know, what are the metrics we're tracking? What are the controls in place? What are the processes that we're doing to make sure that we're optimizing for recoverability of a system uh, rather than trying to build this sort of, you know, robustness that's actually incredibly brittle and fragile because, well, it's robust. So no one's ever had to actually deal with a failure uh, for the last two years. So when it comes, everyone's hair is on fire. One aspect of database reliability engineering that I've seen you talk about is capacity planning and Capacity planning is really important because you need to know in advance if your database is going to grow in size to something that's beyond what your current provisioned capacity can tolerate because you're going to need to plan to buy more database nodes. So I imagine this is an issue at at Fastly, um, among other companies, but describe the capacity planning process for a database reliability engineer, either through the eyes of Fastly or more generally? It is a a very uh, multi-dimensional approach, right? So first off, it's understanding uh, the scaling pattern that you've employed and understanding the constraints therein. You know, have, are you still within in the phase where you are vertically scaling your database nodes? Or, you know, have you gotten to a point where you have decided what a good unit of work is uh, for a horizontal node and you apply your models to that? Um, so it's understanding that part first is, and, and there are certain areas, you know, and constraints within there that you have to look at. There's no single one. I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about database capacity, you know, they might be thinking about storage, obviously, disk space. Some people are thinking of memory and working sets. Um, but then there's other constraints around you know, concurrency within the system, which varies tremendously based on what database you're using. If you're using a relational store or using, you know, Redis or something similar, their, their, their connection and concurrency models are quite different. So it, first off, you have to build the model in place of what are the constraints that could potentially, you know, max out, bottom out. From there, uh, with load testing, ideally you identify uh, what, you know, where those two max out. At that point, then you start plan deciding, uh, okay, based on the load testing that we've done, based on the scaling model that we've done, you know, we know that when this metric hits here, that this metric hits, hits here, that we have to start doing this. And then once you've sort of said, okay, that's how we get through the current model, we know then the next step is going to be either, you know, functionally partitioning our data store or sharding it or anything else. Let's start to look at when that constraint is going to come in place and start deciding, you know, the amount of effort needed to shift to that uh, because you don't want to optimize too early and start to look for those key factors as well. That's great if your loads are linear and, you know, you, you can sort of just know, okay, well, this happens, this happens, this happens. But the reality is this is data storage. And so, you know, within that, if you are a young company or a rapidly iterating company, you're constantly changing what you do. 
And that means you're going to have different indexes, different tables. And so even it's not just a matter then of saying, okay, well, X customers means X amount of storage, X amount of queries. Instead, then you have to keep on, keep up with all the changes that are coming into your system. And that is where, you know, where ideally you're teaching your developers to not only understand what they are doing in terms of data access and data storage from a functional perspective, but you're making sure that they understand the uh, underlying characteristics of that data store and how that applies to change. So, okay, well, we know that in this data store, it's a binary tree index. Uh, You always on a new table get a primary key, which adds an index immediately. And then we know that you know, based on the characteristics, it's going to also need these. And we know with these data types that that happens. So at that point, if you've if you taught your software engineering team about the data store, and that's one of the key areas where I get scared when people try to abstract the engineers away from the data store, you then don't have advocates for capacity and you know for people who will understand the impacts of their changes, not from a, just a perspective, uh, the perspective of performance and functionality, but also you know the underlying sort of longer term shifts in the workload that will completely invalidate your capacity models. That's where I think a reliability engineer for databases with deep domain expertise is uh, invaluable because they can uh, teach people the impacts of you know a new data a data type change a table change an index change the job of the sre when you know a lot of that that google sre book is, is about automating yourself out of any manual work if possible if you can write a script to do something that you're doing manually you should write that script are there any tasks that the database reliability engineer should keep as manual tasks just to force themselves to to do the process in order to have more scrutiny over that process? Because I think that's, that's like a mental trick that sometimes people play on themselves where they say, you know, what, I, w- I want to leave this process as manual because I'm kind of afraid of automating it. Yeah, so I think automation itself is an interesting topic. And you know, I think this idea that we can automate almost all of our manual work, you probably could, but would it be the right amount of time and effort to automate everything? So I, uh, I really ask people when they look at a process and try to decide um, what to automate and what not to sort of value stream out, you know, the various components of the overall process and, you know, what is either very, you know, takes a lot of time and effort. What is risky? Uh, and, you know, having a human do it over and over again creates risk because the repeatability of software, if, I mean, obviously that that precludes no bugs or anything else, it makes it easier for something to happen without a human error coming into it or being attributed to a problem. So uh, when I ask people to look at what's automated, it is a matter of saying, okay, so what's what de-risks the day-to-day operation of this system? And then what potentially, you know, adds risk. And, you know, just because something, there's nothing that should be automated that a human shouldn't be able to still do. So for instance, failover, right? If you get to the point where you have primary server failover, you know, or a secondary server, you know, the read replica failover is automated. Um, there are still times when you should regularly, regularly test those because what if the automation is down? What if it's a bug in the automation software itself and a cascading failure therein? So you absolutely do need to teach people how to do the day-to-day traffic shifts and recoveries that an automated system can do. The same for a data recovery, right? Yes, you should be testing. You should be using this as part of your everyday work. You should be automating the testing and you know as much of the recovery as possible. 
but you still should be asking your engineers to at some reasonable level of uh, frequency to test or restore themselves to test a failover without that automation. Otherwise, they will get in the same environment, you know, just like I said before, where you have a reliable system that's fragile because no one's tested the failovers, even an environment that's incredibly resilient to this through automation, if you haven't tested those processes themselves, then you're going to come into the same thing. So I, I think anything that is a matter of recovering a service to functionality for users can, and you know, if, if you can appropriately de-risk it, should be automated. Um, but nonetheless, you need processes in place for regular game day t- testing and just to make sure that people can do it uh, if and when those systems fail. We've had some differing opinions on the show of the idea of using a write-ahead log as a tool for recovering from an incident. So for people who don't know, the the write-ahead log is this append-only log that a lot of transactional databases have that it's not the actual database itself. It's a history of the changes across a database. So if you have the write-ahead log up into timestamp X, and then you have a d- the database of timestamp X. The database of timestamp X is great because that's a transactional data store, but the write-ahead log is useful because you can actually understand the entire history of how the database has looked from th- what you can reconstruct from the write-ahead log. Now, that said, the write-ahead log is much more verbose than the database so there are these these differing approaches. So so Tammy Budow from from Gremlin now she does chaos engineering. I asked her about this this question like should you use the write ahead log as a, a means of recovery from some kind of incident where you can reconstruct up into you know timestamp X, and she her approach was yeah I mean if you need to look at the write ahead log but you should have recovery mechanisms in place such that the write-ahead log is not your your source of restore. You would much rather just have database snapshots as your recovery vector. Do, do you have an opinion on one of these two recovery mechanisms? Like any good database engineer, it's it, it depends. And so I think uh, one of the things I talk about in the book in the recovery section is this concept of you know, recovery in depth and having a multi-tiered approach because you can't always guarantee exactly how you're going to have to recover a data store. Day-to-day, the, the, what you use to get a system back in service or to provision new instances, add capacity, that absolutely should be snapshots wherever possible. So, you know, something that is on fast storage that is easily put in place uh, and allows for quick transport of data. Um, those are ideal for that solution. Then you have, you know, this concept of, you know, and it used to be this, you know, the idea of a logical versus a physical backup. And you might, like if you're in the MySQL world, a MySQL dump, right? That is similar in many ways to the to what you're talking about, because to restore, you have to reply, uh, basically apply an insert for everything. In this case, you're capturing the changes, but those changes can, first off, they can corrupt, they can get corrupted. So you can't depend on them completely. They're very time consuming to recover from because you have to apply every change but they do have places. Um, some of those places are, you know, when you are reconstructing data after a very complex corruption, 
and that corruption could come from, you know, any something in the distributed system environment itself, or it could come from, you know, the corruption based on an application and some really interesting logic there. Uh, you will, you of course are going to need to reconstruct that. So in those cases, it's a great tool. And one tool you didn't even mention, which is also very interesting, is the the idea of versioning objects in the database, um, just like in you know. Our, if you look like an object store and the idea that you can, you know, version what's in that bucket and then reapply it, there's no reason that you can't store previous versions of an object as you mutate it. So if you mutate a row in the database, if you always store a previous version of it and you have a large bug, you can actually programmatically let the application fix things in a just-in-time approach. Um, so when a customer comes in, you know, either engaging them and saying, hey, we have previous two versions, what, what's the most recent one? That's obviously a very blunt example, but the f- making it so that you have multiple ways to restore your data, particularly as your data sets grow and you have a multi, you know, when you get multi-petabyte and even multi-terabyte, uh, this idea of ever recovering your database directly from, you know, a, 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 a backup of record is less and less likely. So at that point, you have to look at how can I incrementally fix this in a way that you know, doesn't destroy my system for days at a time, for weeks at a time in some cases. And, you know, at the, on the other side of it, uh, how can I make my data sets as portable as possible to allow for um, creating test environments on the fly, creating, um, you know, adding capacity or anything else. Let's talk about the concept of failover more generally. How much failover do you need or how do you calibrate the level of failover that you need for a given database application? I mean, you could have you could have failover to different nodes in the same data center. You could have multi-geo location, multi-availability zone distribution for different failover recoveries. What's the model for determining the level of failover that you need? I think it is a, I mean, it's a general risk management exercise in terms of looking at the failure scenarios involved. Like you, you mentioned a lot of them just now, you know, is this, you know, what's the most typical failures? Are they node failures and are these nodes that then have to be recreated? How, what's the likelihood of a zone failing? What's the likelihood of a region failing? And then deciding based on the application itself, what, you know, what uptime that needs based on service level objectives. And then understanding, of course, you know, databases are often multi-tenant. So you have many applications on them. And so, you know, the more centralized your database is and more services on it, you know, the recognition that, well, uh, all services within that database will then have to be set up at a level of redundancy and replication factor necessary for the most critical. And that's a case where you can start looking at functionally partitioning your workload so that services that are less, you know, less uh, sensitive to downtime can be put on systems that are you know, less available. So it's first off understanding that those multi-tenant workloads and you know, what you need to optimize for there. And then it is a matter of taking your service level objectives and risk tolerance and deciding from there, how long does it take you to restore service? And is that acceptable to the business? So, and what's the likelihood? And so it's all just a calculation at that point of what's the cost of my downtime, which can be hard to quantify, but you need to come up with some level of model that puts that in place. What are the mitigations, whether, you know, from a, uh, you know, 
feature flags, uh, putting your application in read-only mode, uh, anything else? What are the mitigations that give you more time? Taking the, all of that into account, you then it's just a simple calculation of you know cost versus uh, you know cost of being down versus uh, the cost of uh, maintaining those services. Obviously, if you're doing the reliability engineering model right. The more databases you increase, you add, doesn't add a linear cost to operations, uh, but there still is a cost to that complexity. And I think that is a, that's a nuance that uh, has to be very carefully considered is, you know, when you start going multi-data center, multi-region, your distributed system starts having much higher latency across connections, which adds its own risk, risk, you know, whether that's a risk of collisions, you know, weird failovers that create split brain scenarios, so, you know, at that point, you have to start considering, okay, if I've, if I have come to the conclusion that I need this, this, and this, am I taking into account the complexity of those distributed systems and the potential failures that come from having them? Just because you set up replication across regions and two databases doesn't mean uh, that it's going to work well. Doesn't mean that you're not creating more risk than if you had just optimized for the ability to you know, easily redeploy a service in a different different zone than, you know, always having a hot spare available with one second latency in the replication stream. As you explained earlier, much of your positioning on this database reliability engineering topic is about spreading the knowledge within the organization, having more egalitarian access to database knowledge do you have any favored practices for evangelizing information within an organization about databases? Let's see. So I'm a big fan of pairing, and I think pairing on, you know, pairing between teams. So pairing a, a database engineer directly into a team of software engineers can be incredibly valuable. Uh, so, for example, uh, I was engaged for a little while with Pivotal Labs on their infrastructure as a service system. And I am not a software engineer. I don't, I've written, I've written sort procedures, I've written shell scripts, but I am not a computer scientist and I would not consider myself a programmer of any, any worth. So, but the, you know, as you know, Pivotal uh, is very intense on their pairing. So we did it anyway. And uh, I learned a huge amount and they those software developers who had access to a database expert while they were building these services uh, were creating they, they got tremendous value and because it was pairing it was active problem solving based on what they needed to know right then versus you know just you know a piece of content that may or may not be applicable to what they're doing so i think the more you can build these you know matrixed uh, or just even temporarily paired teams that cross the database function with the uh, with the, the other functions that you ideally are giving information to uh, the more likely that that information is going to stick and those people are going to get more used to working together Similarly, I think, you know, the shadowing with on-call, even if you don't want to make software engineers on-call for the database services themselves, pairing them up for shifts so that they can just watch and understand or pairing them up for changes, right? You know, it's like, well, we'd like to add these three columns, these three indexes to this table that's a multi-terabyte, making sure that they actually understand how that works and what are the processes involved at the persistence tier to apply a change of that size without impacting customers is a great way for them to, you know, have respect for the data store, but also, you know, start to understand it. So that respect becomes an informed respect rather than this sort of mysterious, I don't ever want to touch that side of the system. Another thing I like 
particularly for software developers looking to uh, make changes to you know the data stores or queries, is a library of patterns and uh, even anti-patterns. So the, you know this idea that okay, you know there are a finite number of mutations you might want to make to a table or a data model, and so as we do those changes and as a database person embeds with a team and teaches them, let's then add that to the pattern library so that in the future, you know, when a developer says, I want to do this, they know immediately where to go to look at how to do that without having to consult a database person. So in many businesses, the customers are going to be price sensitive to the whatever service you're offering them. And so if you have a person who is familiar with the database infrastructure, they can find ways to cost save on that infrastructure. Would you consider the idea of finding cost savings within database infrastructure to be in the purview of a database reliability engineer? Absolutely. I mean, a cost savings is essentially just a trade-off. And at that point, you know, someone who understands the implications of the trade-off uh, can you know, partner with finance or with anyone who's responsible for the OPEX of that environment, assuming a cloud, uh, a cloud data store, and, uh, and come to those conclusions. So, I mean, anywhere your cost savings is are either going to come from you know, reducing throughput, reducing storage, reducing availability and replication factors. Each of those trade-offs comes with a potential risk implication. And you know, the, data, the database engineer or reliability engineer can then take that, their knowledge of the system. And it can be anyone who's familiar enough with that system to say, okay, if we are going to make this cost savings trade-off, then this will impact you know, our ability to hit our service level objectives, whether they're an availability objective or a latency objective. You know, or durability objective, and because that's all it really is, then is an exercise of uh, understanding the trade-off, the potential risks, and deciding if that service, that new service with the cheaper cost factor, is uh, still a service that a customer would be comfortable storing, you know, working with. I touched on the Tammy Budow conversation I had a while ago, and I was talking to her mostly about chaos engineering. What do you think about the idea of instituting random failures in the database? Is the database too sensitive to expose to chaos engineering type practices? I think that you can absolutely start to explore chaos engineering with a data store that's designed for that purpose. And, you know, I will be upfront, just like you said, you know, where, where does the rubber hit the road on theory versus practice? A lot of this database reliability work is uh, still being tested and practiced. And some of it is conceptual. Most of it I've seen somewhere or I've done, but you know, when you start where you start getting into the world of, Hey, we'd like to have a chaos agent uh, that can shoot a right master or a right, I'm sorry, a right primary in the head. And we're comfortable with that being a non-planned exercise. There aren't too many companies yet that are actually willing to do that, but I think of that when I when I when I work with our engineers at Fastly and look at the data stores, that is you know the aspirational goal, right? The the end twenty percent of the OKR that probably won't get met that I ask them to architect and design for, is this idea of you know if I came in on Sunday morning and shut down that data store, which I can't do because I'm an executive and I don't have access uh, to anything uh, in in our systems, uh, but if I could. Or if we wanted a system to do it, would we be able to sustain it? And right now, I think it's just just having those thought exercises and doing a tabletop uh, walkthrough of what would happen and why, and then starting to do a controlled failure and see 
if what your what your hypothesis was actually happened is a great start to that. And then when designing, you know, starting to think about that as well. Uh, are we to a place where we could easily do this uh, and where most people would feel comfortable? No, but I think it is a worthy, it's a worthy thought exercise and it's a worthy design factor to add into your architecture. What should the average software engineer take away from this conversation about database reliability? Well, I think uh, they should, ideally, I think what they, what they should take out of this is that, one, they know that you know, this, the, what they feel is a you know, security factor of having a team of experts that they can rely on being there for them is one that they probably can't depend on uh, just because those folks don't scale. And they should be looking for areas where, you know, they can gain knowledge about the data stores they're working with, particularly the ones they're working with, rather than relying on abstractions away. Uh, They should be looking for opportunities where, you know, they, if they have the ability to get knowledge from database experts, that they can start sharing it within their teams. Similarly, I, I hope that they take away from this the idea that, you know, they should be able to work within the data stores. Obviously, that requires guardrails. But if they start thinking about how they can do their work every day, uh, and you know, without necessarily being blocked by subject matter experts who aren't in their teams, if when they start to think about that and start to think about the guardrails um, that they can put in place, uh, so that if a, if a data server fails, that their applications still work, even if partially or in a degraded state, the more opportunity they will create uh, for uh, them to have that kind of velocity by working within the data stores. You've written a book with Charity Majors, and she was on the show a a while ago talking about, well, we mostly talked about her past experiences with the acquisition of of Parse by Facebook. That was actually a really good set of stories. But I like Charity a lot. She's, She's very entertaining and has a whole lot of information to impart that's that's quite useful for people who are in this, I think, probably the space of operations slash logging slash monitoring slash infrastructure conversations. What have you learned from Charity Majors? I've learned how to drink from Charity Majors, <laughs> uh, how to drink properly. Uh, I grew up in New Orleans, so I already knew how to drink. But outside of that, you know, one of the most wonderful things about you know, what charity, charity's knowledge is the fact that it is a pretty much nonstop uh, informed by real life and real life decisions and trade-offs. Uh, charity came into the database world, as she calls it, the accidental DBA. And I came into this world as, you know, the crazy person who decided the first day of their world in computers that they wanted to be a database engineer, which is uh, probably is a psychological dysfunction that should be in the DSM. But, you know, Charity's outlook on, no, I didn't ever plan on being a database uh, engineer, and yet I was forced to, is a, a very different view than mine. And so, you know, that that paradigm and, you know, her approach to looking at this is very different from mine, right? She also comes from the startup world and I came from, you know, the world of Travelocity. Uh, I joined Travelocity when it was still a startup, but it was owned by Sabre and EDS and, you know, these very traditional mainframe and server systems. So I learned uh, a lot from those environments and uh, even did ITIL and various other things, um, that can be considered archaic now. So combining this iterative just-in-time approach that charity takes to building an environment because you don't even know if your business will be in business the next day versus uh, the careful planning and meticulous design that I bring in to an environment that's already built, scaled, needs, you know, at that point needs to 
be made faster and more agile is it's a great mix. It's a great uh, it's a great uh, complement our two skill sets. Lane Campbell, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you about database reliability engineering. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Wow.